Hello, this is David Bank with Impact Alpha's Returns on Investment with a special Agents of Impact episode. I'm here with Bertrand Badre and Protik Basu from Blue Like an Orange. Uh, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Blue Like an Orange uh, uh, was launched in 2017. And <laughs> I think one of the first questions people always ask is, Blue Like an Orange, is that the name of a fund? What 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 is with the name? Give us the story. It's it's a name which has a lot of meaning, but also it's strange enough that people raise the question. So it's a wonderful icebreaker. Ah, well, let's break the ice. Uh, do, we, do, we, do you have any blue oranges in your office to, to make the point? Yes, actually, I have some at home, actually. Someday I'll show them to you. But more seriously, it's a reference to a French poem from the 1920s by a surrealist French poet called Paul Éluard, who wrote Earth is Blue Like an Orange. And it was a reference to uh, a book that actually I wrote 15 years ago with Michel Consus, the former managing director of the IMF, on the financing of water. And it started as water, uh, Earth should have been called ocean because it's blue like an orange. And what is interesting with that poem, it says that it compares uh, Earth to an orange uh, to show its fecundity, but also its fragility. And that's really what we have in mind when we started that. And I've been able to convince my non-French-speaking partners to. <laughs> we, we have a we, we have a betting pool, David, that it's either the first question or the last question asked whenever we're in a conversation. And so I don't know what we're up to yet, Bertrand. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad I could uh, pay off somebody's bet with my first question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm also educated now about, and I love the fact that the, the, it's named after a, a line in a surrealist poem. So that makes a, <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and just a little bit about, about yourselves. I know you, you, you come Bertrand, uh, from the world bank. So why, why leave the bank and, and start a fund like this? Well, actually it's more than the bank. I, I spent 25 years, uh, my 21st five professional years in all corners of finance. I've been a partner in investment bank in, in, in New York, London, and Paris. I've been the group chief financial officer of two of the largest banks on earth. I've been an advisor to President Chirac on development issue, actually working in particular on the tax on plane tickets, to give one example. And then finally at the World Bank. And uh, when I witnessed the uh, collapse of the financial system on the one end, and the need to move on sustainability on the other end, uh, I've tried with my partners uh, to connect the dots and say, how can we redesign the financial system so that it's really built to develop a sustainable approach to development for the 21st century? So that's where we are coming from. Uh, I wrote a book at that time called Can Finance Save the World, subtitled How to Regain Control on Money uh, to Serve Common Good. That's where we are coming from. Well, I want to get uh, very much to uh, whether finance can save the world. Uh, but Protik, I, I know you also um, ran something called the MDG Health Alliance. Um, before the Sustainable Development Goals, there were the Millennium Development Goals. So you've been at this uh, for a while. international efforts of our um, uh, one of our seed, our founding investors, a gentleman named Ray Chambers, when he was the UN Special Envoy for Health. And so we were very, very involved in the Millennium Development Goal period and I think just came increasingly to the realization that, that no matter how much public money we throw at our global development aims, um, there's just not enough of it out there. We've got to tap the private capital markets to achieve the goals. And so when Bertrand was leaving the bank and uh, we were increasingly concerned with this issue. Uh, 
Ray and our team, we decided to to join forces in, in what's become uh, what's become Blue Orange to see if we can truly mobilize some private capital for the for this new much much more broader set of goals that are the SDGs. So let's get, let's turn to the SDGs um, because you know it it, it it seems like a long time ago, but it was only 2015 um, they were adopted, and the 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 world you know really actually came together. I think it was 193. I may have that wrong, or maybe more have joined. You know, countries affirming these 17 goals, um, quite ambitious. You know, ending hunger. You know, universal access to dr safe drinking water. You know, uh, all, all, very much a, a utopian vision that the world endorsed. Um, it's now 2020, five years on. Um, how are we doing? Well, actually, we—I I think it's—it's—it's a—it's a, it's a fair point to remind everybody that it was just five years ago. Even if for a number of people, it seems like an eternity. Uh, if you remember the momentum in 2015, not only did we adopt uh, the Sustainable Development Goals at the UN, but we also moved on financing for development in Addis Ababa in July, and then we moved on to Paris on COP21 on climate, the very same year. So we really put the bricks of the sustainable development framework for the 21st century. And then here we are five years down the road, and it's true that there is uh, a little less momentum. So maybe, Protik, you want to add from your perspective. But I think uh, we are not there. And we're just, we've, we've been one third out of the 15 years which were targeted initially. So the positive news is that people understand more and more what we're talking about. The negative news is that there is not enough action. Yeah. I think it's it's you know on one hand it's it's been five years, on the other hand that means we have ten years left, um, and you know the power of the sustainable development goals I think over the predecessor their predecessor the Millennium Development Goals of which there were eight, you know those goals were very targeted very focused and somewhat argue written in a somewhat top down fashion and there's power in that but there's also some weaknesses in that. The SDGs were written in this very, very wide country consultative process. And so that's how you end up with you know, 17 goals and hundreds of indicators. So the upside of that is true universal buy-in. The downside of that is, you know, where do you start? What do you focus on? How do you prioritize? So there's a risk that it's kind of all things to all people. Um, uh, so there are positive and negative elements of that. And I think that's resulted in some areas of the goals getting on being a little slow to get out of the starting block, but uh, we need to get much more serious, much tighter about them with 10 years left on the clock. And, and the big witness I, I, I witnessed when I was managing director of the World Bank at that time is that we gave more so to the goals than to how to get there. And in particular, right. uh, the underlying financial framework was kind of assumed we'll find a way. But we never really discussed in detail what was needed to change the financial system, public and private, to get there. And five years down the road, um, I mean, some progress, but indeed little progress have been made in that direction. I think one of the criticisms or, or at least observations about them is that they almost implicitly assume um, that it's basically, you know, government, public sector finance. And even with the way people talk about the financing gap, I think it's sometimes framed as... 2.5 trillion. I think the assumption is that that's somehow going to come all from governments and, and essentially taxpayer money. And I'm not sure that was intended, but I think that's how, somehow it's been interpreted. Yeah, that that's, uh, I mean, at that time I led the efforts uh, called from billions to trillions. That was my concern, and it still is. 
I mean, public money available for, to fund development is in the billions. I mean, that's the type of money that uh, the World Bank, the various development banks, most uh, official development assistance is about. And what we need is trillions. So you can discuss whether it's three, four, five, six trillions per annum, but that's the order of magnitude. So how do we bridge the gap between the public billions to the needed trillions? And that's where projects like Blue Lake and Orange come into uh into play. We've been trying to, to reframe it as, you know, that's a, more like a market sizing number. That's the size of an opportunity that could be an investment opportunity that wouldn't be a, you know, money money down the drain, so to speak. It would be money that would come back in the, in the in, you know, as returns on those investments. Yeah, I mean, it, it is an investment opportunity, but that investment opportunity, you know, in some ways remains theoretical unless there is a translation exercise. Right. Otherwise, it just becomes this. It's such a vast pool of investment opportunities. Someone has to then work to translate those opportunities into things that actually have a a degree of of commercial return. And so, while there's a fair amount of rhetoric of, look, we have this massive gap. Look, there's all this, all this money sitting in the private sector, trillions of it. How come it's not going to support the goals? Well, it's it's never going to really support the goals unless you have that translation, both from an investment opportunity as well as from a, a measurement opportunity. Well, let's dig into this, because as you say, I mean, I, you know, I, I think at first there was quite a lot of enthusiasm and even, a, you know, I think maybe surprising level of embrace of the sustainable development goals. Everybody aligned or mapped their activities to, to, to one or more goals. And and then, then I think there was a little bit of a kind of, I don't know if backlash is too strong a word, but a little bit of a reset that said, well, if everybody can map everything to the sustainable development goals, then, you know, then have we really moved the ball forward? So then, then people t- tried to say, well, is there some way to, to really more activate it as, as, as you, as you, as you I, I think one of the thing, and I, and this is important for the DNA of blue, like an orange, it's, we have not spent enough time to understand the financial sector there is an offer and demand. So you have to work on the products. You also have to work on who are the players? What are they expecting? What type of constraints are they facing? They are facing risk constraints. They are facing search for yield constraints in a zero rate environment. They are facing compliance issues and so on and so forth. And so you really have, and that's one of our concerns, is to make sure that people talk to each other and understand each other. And the truth is that Quite often, everybody is on his own silo, on his own lane, and don't want to listen to the other. So I think one of the very important things is to have more and more people, as projects say, who translate what's going on. So to build products that really fit what a life insurer in Europe might be willing to do, what a pension fund in the US might be willing to do, what a sovereign wealth fund in, in the Middle East might be willing to do, and find the right channels that people are familiar with what they are doing and understand where they are putting their money at play. If not, it's very difficult. We, we should never forget that first, we just exited a, a terrible crisis a few years ago. And second, we are in a very uncharted territories of, of, of zero rate and geopolitical anxiety. That is the back, backbone of everything we are discussing. So our job is to make sure that we understand this and find a way to navigate this in an appropriate manner. Right. I think I, I was also a bit surprised um, to the extent the SDGs were embraced by so many, particularly embraced by so many in the private sector um, as, a, as a macro framework. I think that the folks over at the Global Impact Investing Network, um, uh, something like around, are saying something like around 72% of the respondents in our recent surveys use the SDGs as a 
common framework. I know uh, UNDP is 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 working on a set of standards that, that guide fund managers toward and toward these investments. But you know, you do hear these words like align and and map thrown out. And and as we started, you know, thinking about that, what that meant for us as an explicitly SDG focused fund, just just didn't seem like it was enough because what you end up doing, and it's and it's just natural, is you end up you know finding a deal that you like, and there's a real temptation to almost back in to the uh, to the icon or to the goal that makes the most sense, and and that's how you get to your SDG impact, and that just didn't feel right to us. We wanted to figure out a way to to flip it and really have the you know take the SDGs seriously, and and actually really have it guide uh, 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 guide how we even select select deals and how we diligence deals and how they move through our process. So you tell us a little bit about your your internal process, and then I guess you've now taken that um, internal process and, and turned it into something that that others can use as well. I, I think coming back to my previous point, I think our job is to make the life of investors as easy as possible. We should never underestimate this. I mean, you should you will never force money to go to a given place if you don't help it go to this given place by making it easy, straightforward, transparent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So our job is really to to make sure that SDG finance, SDG connected finance, is not a side bucket, but becomes mainstream. That really incorporate into the decision making process of investors on earth, the idea that sustainability is core and not kind of nice add-on. It's not just risk and return, it's risk, return and impact or risk, return and sustainability. And to get there, you have to make their life easy. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, I think Bertrand, the point you just made is so, so critical. I mean, what we're attempting to do at least is, is you know, we don't want to be a, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, we don't view sustainability as a side project or, or when we find an investor to have, you know, have the investment come out of some some side uh, uh, sustainability sleeve. I think we're looking for this to be a, a core mainstream product. But uh, I think Bertrand's point is an excellent one. I just can't un- overestimate how difficult that can be and how the internal incentives all the way across can make that very challenging. So so we need to make it it's our job collectively, those of us who care about the impact investing space, is to is to is to make that make that decision making as as easy and, and as almost you know pre-chewed, pre-digested as possible. Um, and and one way in which we're trying to do that is, is for us internally is to make the SDGs a bit more digestible um, uh, uh, for us from an investment perspective. Well there are a kind of uh, you know flurry of Frameworks and 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 guidelines and and certifications. Even the International Finance Corp is 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 running funds through a a, a kind of process of of their what they call operating principles. And um, everybody seems like they've got a, a some kind of a framework. In some some level, the 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 complaint now is you know maybe too many frameworks. And so it's the the attempt to simplify has itself become quite complex. Um, <laughs> it's a necessary. Uh, moment in time. I mean, there is no master of the world to decide this is it. And it's probably okay. So I think we're at the moment where we should really discuss and engage and, and test, etc. And, and Protic will come to that. We want to be part of that debate in a, in a totally open manner. I don't think proprietary systems are the name of the game today. The second point is also, what do you want to measure? 
Uh, again, that gives the impression of being confusing. Uh, but some people are discussing the way to measure, let's say, CO2 emission. Some people are, are trying to assess the way you make an investment decision. Some people are trying, and this is what we are doing, trying to assess how is my dollar impacting the world, be it in a water project, education project, or health project, how do you compare them, etc. So I think it's okay, it's a little confusing, and it will remain confusing for a while. We should not doubt about this. Again, there is no matter of the world, but Protik maybe you want to add to this. No, I, I, to, to, to me, I think it's, a, it's, 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 it's said correctly, Bertrand. To me, it's about a transparency of process. I don't see there being a convergence on a single process anytime soon. And I think that's totally fine. And I think the focus on uh, ratings and certifications, while you know one could argue there's a lot of them um, and we're participating in, and I think most of them, uh, I think overcorrecting for, for that certification probably isn't a bad thing in the short term, just to make sure that um, we're holding a, each other accountable to a high bar. I think certification, though, is different from how one goes about measuring uh, impact and, and, and an impact measurement frameworks that you could use as, as an investor. And, 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 I, and I think it's fine that different investors have different impact measurement frameworks, personally speaking. I just think that it'd be helpful if everyone were completely transparent about how those how that impact measurement is done. And so for us, when we were thinking about how we translate the SDGs for ourselves as investors, we didn't we didn't put this together in, in some ways to to go out and 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 try to sell something. Uh, we developed this because we just we needed it. Um, uh, so it really came out, emerged out of emerged out of necessity. So just walk us through, if you can, at a high level, how how you think about both assessing impact at the front end of an investment and then measuring it as as you go forward, and, and what you're calling SDG Blue. So it's a continuous dialogue we have with our our clients on on the SDG front. We, we're we're very clear with them up front uh, with regard to the to focus of our our investment vehicle, and and we expect that to be a journey of the life of the investment. And every investment, as it moves through our investment committee, you know, we're a credit fund, so it gets a a shadow uh, S&P style, Moody style credit rating from a commercial standpoint. And what we were finding as we were just getting off the ground is we didn't really have a similarly consistent way of looking at the SDGs. We would find ourselves using terms like narrative and mapping and, and, and alignment, and it, and it just didn't seem good enough. But then if you actually look into the SDGs, you find that there, there are really written uh, with a bit more of a public audience in mind, particularly if you go all the way down to the indicator level. And so what, what we decided to do is like, okay, well, is there a way of translating the SDGs into something that's a bit more investor-friendly for us? And in, in doing so, we came up with a, a rating system, essentially. It's, it's a series of, of weights and measures similar to what we do on the credit rating side. It weighs the different SDG impacts that a particular investment we think will have. Uh, takes weighted averages and, and adds it into points and then converts that into a, a letter grade. And we made a decision to actually, given the breadth of the SDGs, you know, we, we can't be all things to all people. We had a debate and a discussion internally as, as a team to say, which are the goals that we think no matter what we invest in, no matter what the sector is, we're going to hold constant. And, and we, picked, we picked four goals to do that. We picked job creation, gender equality, innovation, and sustainability, as we thought, you know, sector agnostic, everything has to hit, or everything, every investment needs to be measured against against those bogeys. And then we have 
other goals and uh, related to the business itself that we're investing in that we factor in. And I won't get into the details here, but basically we apply uh, weights to those different areas and sum it up to, to a rating. And what we do is we assign an initial rating as it moves through our investment committee process. And then every year, and then there's a series of, of indicators that are developed and baseline data collected. And then every year we, we refresh the, the scoring. And, and that's, again, an iterative process with our borrowers. Um, but like just as we refresh the credit rating, we, we refresh the, the SDG blue rating as, as well over time and see how we have improvements, but, but potentially deteriorations in the portfolio that we then have ability to manage. Well, just at the process level, are you go looking for investments that will move the needle on particular SDGs at the outset? Or do you find a good investment and, as you say, map it? you know, ex post facto back to, to the SDGs? Well, we have sectors that we, we focus on um, as an investor. And so we have a sectoral, you know, quote unquote, notional allocations, I'd say, for our investments themselves, whether it be in, and we have allocations for healthcare, for education, for agribusiness, for clean energy, technology. And, and so we, we use the sectors as our initial uh, sieve, I'd say. And look for investment opportunities that that map to those sectors. And then within those sectors, we run the 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 SDG analysis that we do. But the starting point is is what are the sectors in the countries of our primary areas of focus? And then we run the credit assessment and the SDG assessment based on that initial kind of sectoral cut. And obviously, we seek to find a, a nice balance of sectors across the across the portfolio, balance of sectors and balance of of, of countries as well, obviously. And what would you do when, when, as you say, you go back and refresh it each year? What would you do if the SDG score is that what you call it, or the the rating, rating. the grade um, goes goes down um, from from one year to the next? Well, I, one is we take note of that, and that's a conversation we we'll obviously have with 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 our borrowers. So even being able to recognize that it's gone down, I think Bertrand and I would argue is a is a, is a very good thing. Obviously, not a very good thing that it went down. And then, and then we would start interrogating with the with with the borrower. You know, why is it that that there was a, a degradation, and and how do we how do we correct it essentially? And and obviously, not not all um, uh, downgrades are, are are the same. And, and and for some, there could be very good reasons, very good commercial reasons why something um, uh, went in the negative direction. On and 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 so we want to know why actually. So it would begin a dialogue with the with the company. What we're not doing is using it as a as a punitive, punitive mechanism, uh, we're, we're really using it as something that the first step is information transparency and dialogue, and then what can we do about getting it back on track? But I think what Rick says is extremely important. I think dialogue is the key. Uh, I mean, since we first meet with a with with a borrower at the beginning till the end, we have to discuss. I mean, the SDG is very familiar to a very limited number of people on Earth, and most of the time, when you go to a potential borrower and you explain him what we are talking about. I mean, it's not that they are opposed to it, that most of the time they're not very familiar or they don't know anything about it. So I think it's important, I see that as part of our mission, to also uh, disseminate that approach and, and enrich that approach. Because it, I mean, you can also have cases where there is a degradation because people don't know. It's, it's again, you, you really have to, it's not another Washington consensus type of approach where the, the nice Western people impose a view of sustainability to the rest of the world. It must be a very inclusive process. And I think, yeah. I think it's very important to remind this again and again and again. 
Bertrand is making such an important point here. You mentioned, David, at the outset that 193 countries agreed to these goals, which is astounding to get 193 countries to agree to, to anything. And so, so we should bear that in mind. But when we engage with entrepreneurs, private companies, and at least for currently in Latin America, you know, there's generally some, sometimes a knowledge of what the goals kind of are, but not really. They're busy running their businesses as best they can, and, and they believe in the societal impact they're having. And so I, I, I think Bertrand and I have both been really inspired that once you walk them through the goals, walk them through why we at Blue Orange are focused on the SDGs, they themselves get excited and, and they, they then know their companies the best and they provide us with suggested indicators and they, they begin the dialogue. And I've, I've really been, I think both of us have really been inspired by the degree to which there hasn't been this pushback from them saying, oh my God, another reporting burden or what do these guys want? Fine, let me give them what they want because we want their money. Quite, quite the contrary. You, you start really digging into a conversation with them. And and, and, and and that's how the goals really catch on fire. I, I have found that, I think both of us, uh, uh, Bertrand, have, have found that it's been a really inspiring part of, 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 of the investment process. Yeah. Well, you've made three investments so far, and I don't know if you want to pick one and, and, and tell us a little bit about how, how this um, scoring system worked. And you can describe the investments uh, better than I can, but pick your favorite child. <laughs> like parents, we don't have favorite. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I would take. I know we 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 talked about it once once before, but I would talk about a uh, a company like Cabify, for example, which is a uh, a ride hailing company that we uh, uh, we invested in. Um, I think five or six months ago. At this point, I'm losing I'm losing track of time. Um, I used it. I've used it uh, 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 repeatedly and, and 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 happily in in Mexico. On Have you? Recently. Good, good. We're very uh, we're very happy that, that you had a good experience. We'll pass that along to uh, to management. But there is, as as you might remember from our earlier conversations, David, you know, we we feel there's a substantial impact the company is is making, both in terms of, for example, an SDG five, uh, which is a mandatory goal of ours, as I mentioned before, on gender on gender safety, gender equality. You know, they're doing specific trainings uh, for how to attract and retain women drivers on the on the Cabify platform. You know, traveling alone as a woman in, in, in Latin America, as in many parts of the world, can be quite dangerous. They suffer from harassment, et cetera. So we we have that and in, 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 in a dialogue with the company, you know, score what we feel the impact on a zero to 10 basis the company might have on on gender equality. And, and, and in this particular case, without getting into all the, the details, we added everything up and, and we came up with a, a, a score of, uh, I think it's, it's, it's six on, on Cabify uh, for that. We looked at, at environment and climate in terms of SDG 12. You know, Cabify uh, is, is already a, a, a carbon neutral uh, company. They're very, they're very proud of that. And in addition, we have an indicator in the company where we, we work with them to look at the average age of the fleet. And the age of the fleet is the, is, is the proxy for how clean their, their fleet, how clean their vehicles actually are with the assumption that, is that the older the vehicle, the, the more potentially pollutant it could be. So in that particular case, it got a, a seven for its stance on, on, on climate and sustainability. And, and, and so on and, and so on and, and so on and so forth. So basically, we kind of take those four mandatory goals, apply them against the company, 
um, uh, we, we, we take, uh, for example, goal nine, which is a goal on, on innovation. Um, innovation in that goal is very, very broad SDG. And within that SDG includes things like use of uh, mobile technology platforms, et cetera. You know, Cabify is a ride-hailing company. It uses an app. It's even trying to look at underserved populations. We're doing a pilot with them looking at underserved populations in Lima to see if there's a way of tracking whether or not the cars are going to underserved areas. And then in those areas, whether or not you can even start toggling pricing to encourage uh, a safer, better access to, to, to ride hailing services of transportation to underserved areas. And so it gets a high score for that. So, so on and so forth. We take all these, these measures, the investment team is allowed to even apply some bonus goals if it, if it really thinks it's, it's hitting it out of the park on a couple of topics. All that's added up to a, uh, a scoring, and that then converted into a, a letter grade, essentially. And then, you know, we keep track of all of these on an annual basis, and 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 we see we see how they we see how the company does. Well, let me. I mean, let me just play devil's advocate. I, I that all sounds good, um, except I wonder whether you know financing for ride hailing companies is really what people have in mind when they think of the financing gap for the SDGs. Just just a first comment, and then I'll hand it to Bertrand. I, I think the point you're making is really a really interesting one, David, because it's it's you use the term is what people think of, uh, or the phrase what people think of when they finance the SDGs. And one debate we've even had internally is 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 on that. You know, we we can you know I, I'm happy to speak for an hour as to the the the, the, the positive impact of a company like. Cabify. But you're absolutely right. When people, quote unquote, think about impact, a lot of people think about things like climate or they think about you know, agribusiness or they think about you know, healthcare at the bottom of the pyramid. But if you actually look at the SDGs, the 17 goals, the targets and the indicators, they are a broad framework for sustainable development. And, and so if you truly take the goals seriously and get down to that indicator and goal level, You'll find that companies like, like, like Cabify knock it out of the park. But there is a narrative gap between what people quote unquote think about when they think about impact and the goals to which 193 countries have actually agreed to. But Bertrand, please. Yeah, no, I, I think, uh, and, and we've been through that process, as Protic said internally, uh, coming from areas like the World Bank or Health, we had this photogenic image of impact equals solar panel, windmills, hospitals, etc. And it is part of the impact narrative. But the truth, and we've discussed with potential uh, with with uh, pension funds, life insurance in the world, we think about this, and and we have this dialogue with them. And the truth is to have company which in the new areas of development are behaving in an exemplary manner matters as much as the photogenic impact. It's very important that you have companies that put uh, SDG at the at the core of the way they operate. It has a lot of sense in in, in emerging and developing economies. But of course, it's more difficult to put on, 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 a, on a glossy uh, report uh, or you have to put it in a different manner. But I think it's very important to have a broader perspective than just uh, the, the usual nice pictures that we all have in mind. I probably should have raised this earlier, but just the, the kind of capital you provide is sometimes called, I think, mezzanine debt. Um, it's not... It's not equity, uh, which sometimes people think about in these funds. I think of them as, as sort of standard private equity funds. That's not you. So what is what is mezzanine or subordinated debt and why is it important? I think it's an instrument which is 
uh, I would say everything which is not straight equity and everything which is not straight senior debt. It's it's really structured debt, uh, which basically provides flexibility, like grace period, the capacity to capitalize your interest, the capacity to pay part of the interest as as a as a uh, income sharing feature and so on and so forth. So it's very flexible. And the truth is that this mezzanine debt is something which is ex- extremely common in uh, Europe, extremely common in the US, and I would say mostly in OECD country. But you don't have access to that type of products in a very limited manner in most emerging and developing economies. Whereas these are typically the countries where it's uh, really something that would make a difference. For an entrepreneur working in this country where the banking system is what it is, so with limited access to, to entrepreneurs, etc., the capacity to provide flexible debt instruments, which are really uh, customized uh, to satisfy the expectations of the entrepreneur, has way more value. And that's where we are coming from. It, it's really to address this gap so that in the shelves, in uh, in, in, in emerging and developing economies, you can offer much more than traditional equity, and you have a lot of private equity funds. You can offer more than traditional senior debt, and you have some of it with the banking system or most of the development institutions, but you have very little provider of flexible financing tools, and that's what we are bringing to the market. You mentioned the development institutions and, and sometimes called the development finance institutions. Um uh, which one would think would be providing this sort of uh, debt that might be riskier than than commercial debt. I think there's a, a little bit of a perception out there that they uh, that they're they're not willing to accept uh, a much more risk than commercial banks. Is that is that the in some sense the gap you're filling? Well, I don't, I'm not sure we are filling that gap, but it's true that it's one of the issues that these development institutions are facing, and I've been leading one of them. Uh, so they are part of this very big debate where on the one end they are incentivized to take risk and then when the risk materializes they are blamed for having taken risk. And, and, and so uh, I, I think it's important that people like us can provide this, this kind of riskier instruments uh, bringing in a, a private money but we do it uh, in relationship with, with IDB. We have an agreement with Inter-American Development Bank to work together and that's part also of the key building blocks of, of blue like and orange. For me and for us, it was important at the beginning to, to really find innovative way to join forces. As I said initially, one of the big issues I discovered when we worked on this SDG and, and climate in 2015 is that private sector seeing private, public sector seeing public. Sometimes they say, oh, let's blend, but they don't mean it really. Everybody is, is, is way more at ease to do what is familiar with. Uh, and I think to find new ways to join forces is essential because none of the SDG will be achieved by just the public or the private sector. It's not true. It will be achieved because people are capable of working together under, I would say, the benevolent control of civil society. And that is really the target that we, are, uh, that we have as Blue Like and Orange. We want these people to work together. And it's difficult because they are not naturally capable of, as you very well know, at Impact Alpha. It's a lot of effort to get. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's entirely different languages sometimes that are spoken. Entirely di- so. There's a translation exercise as we discussed before that's really really critical and uh, that that people have to play. I think you're going to um, uh, roll out this SDG Blue uh, framework and uh, at uh, the World Economic Forum uh, meeting in Davos this this week. And Davos is kind of an interesting animal in itself. You talk about the translation mechanism. 
at some level, the 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 the, the reports and the the rhetoric comes out. It, it sounds very much like as you as you mentioned the 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 heady days of, of twenty fifteen with with the sustainable development goals and and the, and the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, yet Davos often gets ridiculed and and criticized as sort of the you know play play playpen of the global elites and 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 not uh, not really um, down for for the uh, saving the world mission that it sets for itself. So how do you reconcile this kind of the the, the contradictions inherent in a place like Davos? Say these contradictions are not only Davos. I mean you could feel exactly the same when you go to the UN General Assembly. Or, or the annual meetings of the World Bank and the IMF. So to all of these meetings where you, you have a lot of people, what you call the global elite, meeting together for a few days and uh, committing to changing the world. And then you realize that it's not that easy. So uh, I'm, I'm, no, but that is true. It's, it's, a, it's a very fair question. And there are very good reasons why uh, these meetings are, are, are vilified or ridiculed. Uh, but that's really the point we are making. And, and that's why we've created Blue Orange, because we, we're, we are part of that and we say it's really time to walk the talk and, and to move beyond commitments to action. Uh, this being said, I don't want to ridicule the commitments too much now. For one, and again, we had the same issue with the business roundtable call uh, end of August to say, let's move from shareholder capitalism to stakeholders capitalism. Uh, people say this is a, another proof of washing. Maybe. But on the other hand, in today's world, when you put your signature at the bottom of a page where you say, I'm going to do this, this, and this, you put yourself at risk in today's world. People will hold you accountable. So I think the, the I would say the Davos game or the UNGA game or whatever game has been pretty, uh, I would say, benign for many years. I think you're putting yourself at risk if you, if you commit now uh, to make a real difference. I agree. I think the skepticism obviously is 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 healthy and it's and it's quite warranted but you know to to others i'd say well, what would you prefer would you prefer them to to not make these statements would you prefer for them to to not sign on that bottom line i'd rather have these folks sign on the bottom line put themselves out there and then we should all hold each other to account at least then there's something to hold them to account for because now everyone's out there and and even folks like the the regulators even folks like the sec are now looking at you know esg and applying scrutiny to that and and frankly we we I think we should collectively welcome welcome that attention yeah I, I agree with that part my, my my question really is what will it take for that global agenda uh, to become a popular or even a you know a populist to use the the, the current language um, movement where where in fact it's not you know derided as as global elites but it's actually seen as you know improving the the actual you know lives of billions of, of people. I, I think and it's 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 extremely it's an extremely difficult question and and I'm working on a book on this. It, it, it's really we cannot just change the world with a system as it is defined today. And what do I mean with that? We, we're really in, in, in a, let me call it neoliberal or capitalist system, which has been engineered in the 60s and 70s around the shareholder capitalism approach. Uh, the social purpose of business is to make profit. I mean, you know the whole story. Uh, as long as we don't change it for real, and it means changing the accounting rules, the compensation rules, the way you define uh, IRR, 
the way you integrate externalities like the price of carbon today and the price of nature tomorrow, the way you report, your disclose, etc. The system will not change. And so everything which will be good will be, will be done based on the goodwill of few institutions, few people, a uh, few individuals. I mean, you cannot just rely on the, on, on the great, nice uh, CEO of Danone or Unilever to change the world. This being said, it's important that these people are there and show that it's doable, but it's not enough. As long as you don't change the system, as long as you have no incentive built in in the system to do the right thing, it's not going to be enough. And the issue, we are back to the no master of the world problem. There is no master of the world to decide how you change the system today, contrary to the 60s and 70s. So that's why we have to do our best because this is our responsibility. But to get way beyond that, this is really the fight of, of this generation. Well, I very much look forward to that book, Bertrand, and I look forward to our next conversation about this. That's obviously sets us up very well for the for the next uh, for the for the next conversation. But uh, let's leave it at that for now. And I thank you very much, Bertrand Badre and Protik Basu from Blue Like an Orange. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, David. Thanks for having us, David.